shop and said to the candy shop owner, I'm here to buy three boxes of chocolates. I need a small box of chocolates, a medium-sized box of chocolates, and a large box of chocolates. Candy shop owner said, well, we can do that, but that's kind of an odd request. Can I ask what it's for? Little boy said, oh, sure. He said, tonight I'm going on a date with my girl. And if at the end of the date she gives me a handshake, I'm going to give her a small box of chocolates. If at the end of the date she gives me a hug, I'm going to give her a medium-sized box of chocolates. And if at the end of the date she gives me a kiss that has me seeing stars and hearing music, I'm going to give her a large box of chocolates. Candy shop owner said, okay. He said, we can do that. He said, here we go, small, medium, and large. That was $5. That was $10. That was $20. Little boy said, great. Paid his money. Walked out with his purchase. That night, he went over to his girl's house, and at the last minute, they were invited to stay over and have dinner with her family, and they did. They sat down at the dinner table, and the little boy was asked to say the blessing. He bowed his head and prayed for 11 minutes. He said so many dear heavenly fathers and these and thous and prayed to God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and quoted scripture and told Bible stories. Most flowery prayer you'd ever heard of in your entire life. Finally said amen. He looked up and he saw a tear running down his girl's cheek. She said, I had no idea you were that spiritual. And the little boy said, I had no idea your daddy owned a candy store. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm excited to be here at Hoover. Uh, I appreciate the invitation that Chuck gave me to, to come and uh, host this teaching rocket seminar. We're going to have a lot of fun today. We're going to learn a lot. And, uh, this seminar is not just for people that want to be a better Bible teacher, but really for anyone who wants to be a better Bible student. And if you were not planning to stay uh, this afternoon, I hope that you'll, uh, I'll encourage you to reconsider doing that, especially if you just stay for the first session this, uh, this afternoon. I promise you that you won't be disappointed, and then you can decide if you're going to stay for the whole thing. But what we have to, uh, what we have to talk about today uh, pertains to anyone that wants to be a better student of the Word of God. And especially in this session in Bible class, I want to talk about some keys to better Bible study. Uh, one of the things that I talk about often in these seminars is that good Bible study habits are not intuitive. Good Bible study habits are not intuitive. In other words, you don't come out of the waters of baptism instantly knowing how to best study the Bible for yourself. Good Bible study habits are learned explicitly and put into practice and developed through repetition and discipline and, and those sorts of things. We, you don't just figure out on your own how to best study the Bible for yourself. And I also believe that to be a better Bible teacher, you must be a better Bible student. To be a better Bible teacher, you must be a better Bible student. And it's very likely that in your past there has been a preacher or teacher that you deeply loved and, and especially because they had this uncanny knack for bringing rich insights out of the text. Insights that you had never seen in that passage in your entire life even though you might have studied it for 20, 30, or 40 years. But you had never seen things in that passage and a teacher was able to bring them out of the text in that excellent way. That's the kind of teacher that I want to be. That's especially the kind of student that I want to be. And it's probably the case that those individuals were practicing some of the keys to better Bible study that we're going to be talking about together in Bible class this morning. And so, number one, as we think about this idea of keys to better Bible study, I want you to learn to read repeatedly. Learn to read repeatedly. And, and really what I have in mind here is reading the same passage over and 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 over again. 
It is my advice to teachers, especially if they're planning to teach or preach through a passage, they need to be reading through that passage 10, 20, 30, 40 times if necessary, because every time they read through that passage, they're going to catch some things that they've never seen before in their entire lives. I, I know a gentleman there in Fort Worth near where I live that he has been, it has been his habit uh, for several years to read through the entire New Testament once every 30 days. Reads through the entire New Testament every 30 days. Obviously does it 12 times a year. He's been doing this for 25, 30 years. He told me one time, Michael, every day I find some things in my reading that I've never seen before in my entire life. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful example that is. And, and the idea behind this is sort of like having a favorite movie that you love watching. And every time it comes on TV, you've got to stop what you're doing and watch it. And, and every time you see it, you catch some things you've never seen before, even, time, even though you've seen the film up to a number of times. Um, I, I'm a, I grew up as a big John Wayne fan. Do we have any John Wayne fans in the audience this morning? Any John Wayne fans? Okay, we've got a couple of people going to heaven. Um, I, I grew up as a big John Wayne fan. I'd go to see my grandparents in the summer, and you know, we'd play outside when it was daylight. When we got dark, we'd come in, we'd watch a movie. Usually it was John Wayne. And i got to tell you, my absolute favorite John Wayne movie is McClintock. I've seen that movie, I don't know, countless times. Every time it comes on cable, I've got to stop what I'm doing and watch it. But I love the movie. And every time I watch it, I catch some things in the film that I've never seen before. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Did anyone in here this morning grow up milking a cow? Anybody grow up milking a cow? Anybody? Okay, so you milk a cow and you bring that pail of milk in and you set it down and let it sit there a little bit. What happens to that pail of milk over time? That cream starts to rise to the top, doesn't it? The same thing happens in our Bible study. If you and I will learn to sit with the text, we're going to start to see some rich cream rise to the top. We're going to notice some details in the text that we've never seen before in our entire lives. I want to, I want to encourage you to learn to read repeatedly. And along with this, I would especially encourage you to learn to read large chunks of the text multiple times in one sitting. Learn to read large chunks of the text multiple times in one sitting. I am especially thinking about the idea of reading through the epistles multiple times in one sitting. In my experience, and I grew up in the church as a preacher's kid, uh, so I, I accept all of your sympathy. All right? uh, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and especially in, in, in our church culture, I think what we have done is we have trained people to read through the New Testament epistles in this way. A few verses here, and then a few verses here. A few verses here. That's kind of how many of you learn to read the epistles. My question this morning is, is that how you're supposed to read a letter? Is that how, is that how you're supposed to read a letter? Do you, do you remember the good old days when you used to go to the mailbox and get a letter from a friend or family member? You'd open up the mailbox and you'd see the return address and you'd get all excited and you'd excitedly open up the envelope and, and unfold the letter and you read a few sentences and then you put it down. Then you got it out a week later and you read a few more sentences and then you put it down. You got it out a few more weeks later and you, get, you read a few more sentences. That's not how you read a letter. You probably read through that entire thing while you were standing at the mailbox or maybe walking back to the house. Or, and when you got inside, you sat down maybe at the kitchen table or you kind of leaned on the kitchen counter and you read through it a second time. Maybe then you put it down on top of the counter or maybe in a, in a drawer at home. And then a week later, you got it out and you read all the way through it a third time. That's how you read a letter. So I have a homework assignment for you this afternoon after the seminar is over. I've got a homework assignment for you. I want you to go home and, and do me this favor. 
I want you to read through the entire book of Ephesians more than once in one sitting. That, that's your homework assignment this afternoon. I want you to go home and read through the entire book of Ephesians in, in one sitting. Read, read through it more than once. I think that you'll be amazed at the things you see in that exercise, things that in Ephesians that you've never seen before in your entire life. Now, there's going to be some of you that say, you know, Michael, I'm an adult. I'm a grown-up. I don't have to do homework anymore. I mean, I left that behind in my childhood. Hey, I get it. I completely understand. Obviously, I can't force you to do this. But I will pronounce a curse on you in the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, may whoever does not do this homework, may they be mysteriously signed up to chaperone the next youth lock-in. Amen. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just humor me. Just humor me. I want you to go home this afternoon, read through the book of Ephesians more than once in one sitting. Sit down in your favorite chair with a cup of coffee, glass of tea. Some of you, it won't take you more than 20 minutes to read through those six chapters of Ephesians. But I'm telling you, you will see things in that exercise that you've never seen before in your entire life. And this really uh, hit home for me when I was a junior at Freed Hardeman. Uh, as I mentioned before, I grew up as a preacher's kid. I've been wanting to preach since I was four years old. But... I was a junior in college before I had ever read through an entire book of the New Testament that was longer than one chapter in one city. Now, I had cheated, and I had done the books like Philemon and 2 and 3 John and Jude and Obadiah and others, but a book of the Bible that was longer than one chapter, I had never sat down and read through an entire book of the Bible in one city. But my junior year at Free, I had a class, an advanced course on the New Testament. And one of the homework assignments ongoing in that class was we had to have read through that entire book of the New Testament that we were going to be discussing that day in class. So on a particular Tuesday, if we were discussing Romans, I had to have read through all of Romans before I came to class. Well, I had a free period before that class, and I would go to the library, and I had 90 minutes available to sit and, and read through that book of the New Testament as many times as I could in 90 minutes. Now, some of the, the longer books, like Matthew and Acts, I could only go through them twice in 90 minutes, and that was really booking it. But some of the shorter books, like Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, others, I could go through those 6, 8, 10, 12 times on occasion. And I was amazed at the things that I discovered in that exercise. I saw things in these books that I had never seen before in my entire life. The epistles especially were not meant to be read in bits and pieces, a verse here and a verse there and three verses there, as we so often do in our churches. They were meant to be read all at once, and I would suggest reading them multiple times. So learn to read repeatedly. Number two, learn to read thoughtfully. Oops, did I go the wrong direction? Number two is learn to read thoughtfully. Learn to read thoughtfully. There are several occasions when you and I are encouraged to meditate on the Word of God. Joshua chapter 1 comes to mind. Three times God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. But in verse 8 he says, this book of the law shall not depart from you, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and then your way will be prosperous, and then you will have success. I'm also thinking about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Now, if you're like me, whenever you think of that word meditate, you probably think of a guy sitting cross-legged on top of a mountain somewhere, and he's doing this number right here. Um, 
I'm picking up FM radio. Um, is that what the Bible means by meditation? Well, of course not. So the best way I know to describe it is this. How many of you have a favorite food or dish that you love to eat, but you don't get it just any time that you want to? Maybe because it's made in a part of the country that you don't visit often. Maybe it's made by a family member or loved one that you uh, don't see on a regular basis. Maybe it's a family member or loved one that's no longer living, and so you don't get it at all. How many of you have a, a favorite food or dish that matches that description? Raise your hands. Okay, there's a couple of you. So uh, every year that my wife and I have lived in Texas, we have spent Thanksgiving with a couple that we're very close to. Uh, they're kind of like parents to me and my wife, and they treat my kids like grandkids. And i got to tell you, Miss Laura makes the absolute best Thanksgiving dressing I've ever had in my entire life. It's better than my mama's Thanksgiving dressing, and I told my mama that. Well, for two years, because of some scheduling conflicts, we were not able to have Thanksgiving dinner with them. And so I went three years without Miss Laura's Thanksgiving dressing. And I'm telling you, it was absolutely terrible. It was, it was awful. I was miserable. My relationship with God suffered. I remember thinking on one occasion, Lord, who sinned, me or my parents, that I should not have Thanksgiving dressing? But then 2014 came and we got to have Thanksgiving with them again. Do you think that I went over to their house and stood in line at lunch and piled my plate up with Thanksgiving dressing? Do you think that I then sat down and scarfed it down as fast as I possibly could? No. I sat there and I savored every single bite. Mmm. I just let the flavors explode in my mouth. And I embraced every morsel of seasoning and savoriness. And I sang songs to Jesus. Call me crazy, I think that's how Bible study ought to be for us. That we do not see it as something to rush through and get over with as quickly as possible. But rather we see it as a feast to be enjoyed. Because we've discovered the truth of the Psalms, that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. How many of you have ever had an intense food craving, maybe late at night, the likes of which you figured out, I will not be able to function as a normal human being until I solve this food craving? And bear in mind, you're in a church building and the Lord knows you're lying. How many of you have ever had one of those food cravings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of things I love about living in Texas, but there's one thing that we don't have in Texas like we have back here in the southeast where I'm originally from, and that is really good barbecue pork baby back ribs. But oh, when I come to this back to this part of the country, I, I remember in uh, 2016 in November, I was invited to Chattanooga for a week-long gospel meeting. And while I was in Chattanooga for that entire week, I destroyed no fewer than four full racks of ribs. And I was not sorry. And then about four months later, I was invited back to Chattanooga for two of these seminars. And I took my family with me because we were going to go on a little family vacation after it was over. And we drove from Fort Worth to Chattanooga. And the entire drive, the only thing I could think about was those ribs. I mean, it was awful. I started breaking out in sweats and shaking as I was driving. And I finally got there and I did the sonar. And after it was over, the local preacher asked me, hey, you want to go get ribs tonight? Yes! Call me crazy. I think that's how Bible study ought to be for us. 
that even when we are not engaged in Bible study, it is still all we can think about because we've discovered the truth of what Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What I want you to learn to do is to learn to read the Bible thoughtfully and to take it with you, to reflect or to meditate on what you've read, to anticipate Bible study as a great meal to be cherished and enjoyed, and even when we're not engaged in Bible study, to constantly think about the things that we are looking forward to and the things that we have just learned. Learn to read the Bible thoughtfully. Number three, learn to read the Bible patiently. Number three, learn to read the Bible patiently. Chuck, when I was a local words preacher, I used to love the month of January, especially that period right after the new year. Uh, I, I used to love that part of the year because people would come to church all excited. Brother Michael, I have resolved in this new year, I'm going to read through the entire Bible this year, Genesis all the way to Revelation. And my response as their preacher was always, <laughs> that's precious. No, you're not. I tell them, here's what you're going to find. Genesis is a fantastic book. Have y'all read Genesis? You studied Genesis? Genesis is great. You got people killing each other and selling siblings into slavery. Genesis is wonderful. And the first half of Exodus is fantastic. You got Pharaoh throwing babies to the crocodiles and the ten plagues and a burning bush and Sinai's like the smoking volcano. The first half of, of Exodus is so fantastic. They even made a movie about it called the Ten Commandments. It comes on TV every April. It's great. But then you're going to come to the second half of Exodus after the movie ends. And then Leviticus. And then Numbers. And then Deuteronomy. And if you're like me, you'll think to yourself, maybe atheism is for me. How, how many of you have ever tried to read through the entire Bible in a year and you gave up somewhere around Leviticus? Again, be honest. The Lord knows you're lying. Has that ever happened to any of you? Happened to me plenty of times. What about, there are parts of the Bible that when we get to them, we are tempted to conclude there is no meaning or relevance for Christians in this passage whatsoever. Have any of y'all at least temporarily thought that about a given passage? There's no meaning or relevance here whatsoever. I've thought that plenty of times. One of my favorite examples is the statement in Exodus, latter half of Exodus, after the movie ends. The statement that God says to the Israelites, thou shalt not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And I remember thinking when I first read that, I can't, what now? Th that was a thing? I have never been tempted to do that. I mean, has that ever been a problem for any of you? I mean, can, can any of you remember your intemperate youth, your indiscriminate youth? Some of you are trying to forget your indiscriminate youth. I mean, I, mean, I remember my indiscriminate youth when I made a lot of bad you know, decisions and mistakes. I was never tempted to boil a baby goat in his mother's milk. Drug, sex, and rock and roll, I understand. But that, that was never a temptation for me. There is some weird stuff in these passages. And if we're not careful, we're going to conclude that there's no meaning or relevance here whatsoever. And I'm here today to tell you that the only reason we would ever draw that conclusion is because we have not been willing to be patient. I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. He says in that passage that all scripture is inspired by God and, coordinating conjunction, 
and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. That little word and means that if you and I confess that we believe all of the Bible is inspired, we are also required to confess that we believe all of the Bible is profitable or useful. That every passage has application to our lives. We need to learn to be patient. You and I live in a society that says that if the meaning or relevance or significance of something isn't readily apparent in the first five minutes, it must not have any meaning or relevance or significance. And I'm here today to tell you that's absolutely not the case. In fact, what I have learned in life is this. The tougher the nut to crack, the sweeter the meat inside. The tougher the nut to crack, the sweeter the meat inside. The more difficult a passage is to understand, the greater the truth that will eventually be revealed if we are patient enough. The tougher the nut to crack, the sweeter the meat inside. I want you to learn to be patient with your Bible study. And especially when I come to a part of the Bible that I don't really understand what's going on and I don't see the significance or I don't know how it applies, one of the things that I enjoy doing is I like to put my Bible study aside for a moment and I like to take a drive through the country. I love backcountry highways in Texas. They're often straight as an arrow, 70 mile an hour speed limit. And I can get out there and, and I love driving because driving for me has a way of kind of lubricating the wheels of my mind and I can think through things. You no doubt have a similar activity that you enjoy doing when you need to think through something and, and something that's kind of manual, mindless, and you can focus on something else, uh, whether it be maybe washing dishes or doing chores or pivoting around in a garage or maybe it's gardening or uh, maybe it's uh, sewing or uh, hunting, fishing, or any of playing golf, whatever it is. My daddy, he was a preacher and he didn't like to do any of those things. What he enjoyed doing when he needed to think through something is he loved to cut grass. My daddy hated to hunt, he hated to fish, and he hated to play golf, but he loved to cut grass. He was a strange little man. But whatever it is that you enjoy doing when you need to think through something, I want to encourage you to go and do that thing. I want you to learn to read the Bible patiently. And if you will learn to do that, you're going to see some rich insight into the text. Learn to read the Bible patiently. Number four, I want you to learn to read inquisitively. Learn to read inquisitively. And by that I mean learn to ask questions of the text. Learn to ask questions of the text. This is such an important uh, exercise. For example, the first question, ask who? Ask who? Who is being talked about in this particular passage? What can I learn about them? Let me give you a couple of tips for doing character studies in the Bible. Number one, always pay attention to pedigrees in the Bible. Always pay attention to pedigrees. If, it, if the text says that so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, usually that means they are from a family of social significance. Uh, they were, in their culture, a Kennedy, a Rockefeller, a Vanderbilt, a Roosevelt, something like that. Pay attention to pedigrees. If there is no pedigree mentioned for a person, then usually they were from a family that had no social significance, practically speaking. That's a general rule. Another one is always pay attention to physical descriptions of the character. Always pay attention to physical descriptions of the character. And it's because how often in the Bible are we told anything about a person's physical features? Not often at all. So when you are told something about a person's physical features, Pay attention, I promise you, that it will become relevant in the story. When we are told in Judges chapter 3 that Ehud was left-handed, does that become relevant to the story? Absolutely. So pay attention to that. 
In Genesis chapter 39, when we're told that Joseph was well-built and handsome, does that become relevant to the story? Absolutely. So always pay attention to physical descriptions of the character. Ask who. Another question is, ask what? What is going on here? What type of passage is this? What type of literature is this? We'll talk more about that this afternoon. Uh, what kind of passage is this? Is there a command that needs to be obeyed? Is there an example that needs to be followed? Is there a principle that needs to be put into practice? Is there a sin that needs to be repented of? What exactly am I dealing with in this particular passage? Another question would be, ask when. Ask when. When did this take place? Very important Bible study tip. Pay attention to date and timestamps in the text. Pay attention to date and timestamps in the text. If you and I are told in the Gospels that an event happened in the life of Jesus, say, on the Sabbath day or during Passover, does that become relevant to the story? Absolutely. So pay attention to date and timestamps in the text. And then I want to ask the question, what would the original readers have thought of when they saw that day or holiday mentioned? What would the original readers thought of when they saw that day or holiday mentioned? Because whenever a day or holiday is mentioned in a particular culture, members of that culture instantly think or call to mind certain things. As Americans, if I were to mention the holidays Memorial Day and Labor Day, you instantly thought of certain things. You thought about cooking out, grilling out, people that never cook out in their lives or cook out on Memorial Day or Labor Day weekend. Uh, maybe you thought about how they're kind of the unofficial beginning and the end of summer, Memorial Day, Labor Day. Maybe you think of flags in the cemetery on Memorial Day. And maybe you think of some sort of uh, family get-together. I grew up going to a family reunion every year on Labor Day weekend. Uh, you, you think about any number of things related to those, those holidays, how they're always on Monday, and that's kind of a long weekend that you get to look forward to. We think about certain things related to certain holidays. So let's try this. Tell me what you immediately think of when you think of Christmas. I want to know what you call to mind when you immediately think of Christmas. And, and, and be nice. Occasionally in these seminars, I get some grumpy people, and their response is always something like, Bills, debt, pagan holiday, be nice, be nice. What do you immediately call to mind when you think of Christmas? What do you call to mind? Family? Giving, Santa Claus, dinner, okay, yeah, man, when I was just a, just a young adult and, and married but no kids, you know, Christmas wasn't all that great, but man, we started having kids and Christmas became so much fun, Christmas so much fun when you got a little kid in your life. What do you think about weather-wise when you think of Christmas? What do you immediately bring to mind when you think of Christmas and weather? What do you immediately think of? Snow. You get a lot of snow in Birmingham on Christmas, do you? <laughs> I, I love asking this question. I've done this seminar over 100 times throughout the United States and even internationally. And one thing you need to know is that over the last two and a half years that I've done these seminars, the vast majority of my seminars have been conducted in the southern half of the United States, in the Bible Belt, really. And so if you were to draw a line east to west and cut the lower 48 of the U.S. in half, Cut the lower 48 in exactly in half. Most of my seminars have been conducted south of that line. Every week I go into a congregation and I ask them, what do you think about weather-wise when you think of Christmas? Snow! You get a lot of snow here, do you? No. I was in Orlando back in September, and I asked them, what do you think about weather-wise when you think of Christmas?
Merry Christmas. Snow! You get a lot of snow in Orlando? No. One of my favorites was when I was in Phoenix, Arizona in August of 2017. It was 120 degrees that weekend. I remember thinking that if I stood in a, in a parking lot and turned slowly in a circle, I would start to rotisserie. <laughs> I asked them this question, what do you think about weather-wise when you think of Christmas? Snow! You get a lot of snow in Phoenix, do you? No. But then they shocked me. They said, Michael, did you know that the song White Christmas was written in Phoenix, Arizona? Well, knock me over with a feather. And then the one that took the cake. In December of 17, a little over a year ago, I was in uh, New Zealand, uh, on the North Island of New Zealand, for three weeks on a mission trip with this seminar. And one of the things you need to know about this anecdote is that New Zealand is in the Southern Hemisphere, which means their seasons are flipped. And I was down there in what would be for us early June. Early June. I grew up in Alabama. Early June. While I was down there, I asked them, what do you think about weather-wise when you think of Christmas? Snow! Oh, come on! But then as I drove around the North Island for those three weeks, and as I was in the mall shopping and listening to you know, music on the speakers, guess what songs I heard? Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. <laughs> Even though it was 85 degrees on the beach two hours before I flew home to the United States. Landed in Dallas, and it was 38 and cold and rainy outside. I want to go back. Here's my point. You and I have been culturally conditioned to think about certain things related to certain holidays, regardless of whether it's based on our personal experience. And so it was for Israelites and Jews in the first century. They did not have to have personally experienced something for their minds to have been triggered by mention of a certain day or holiday. And so again, I want to try and get into that mindset of the original audience and ask the question, what would they have thought of when they saw this day or holiday mentioned? I want to ask the question, when? Another question is, ask where? Where does this event take place? Certainly, I want to get out a map or an atlas and try and figure out where on the globe, where physically this place is located. However, I want you to remember another important rule, and it's this. There's always more to wear than just the GPS coordinates. There's always more to wear than just the GPS coordinates. I love the story about the preacher that was doing a, a pew packers class with little kids on a Sunday night before services, and he's asking them some Bible trivia questions, testing their, their Bible literacy. And he asked them this question. He said, can anyone tell me the geographical locations of Dan and Beersheba? And a little boy raised his hand and said, you mean they're cities? And the preacher said, of course they're cities. The little boy said, huh, I thought they were husband and wife like Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> there is always more to wear than just the GPS coordinates. When I was in New Zealand, I asked them, and they all, without exception, gave the same answer. I asked them this question in New Zealand. What do you immediately think of when you think of Nashville, Tennessee? Do you know what they all said without exception? Country music. They all said country music. I grew up in the deep south in Mississippi and Alabama. And so whenever I think about Atlanta, Georgia, I think of awful traffic, awful car traffic, awful air traffic. I think of traffic. My daddy used to say that if you go to heaven or hell, you change planes in Atlanta. 
And, and, and you know, growing up in Alabama, I know that when we think about as, as you know, for people, how many of you grew up in, in the state? Raise your hand. How many of you grew up in Alabama? So when you think of Alabama as a state and you think of different cities in the state, you think about certain things. You think about different things when you're thinking about Huntsville versus Tuscaloosa versus Montgomery versus Mobile and other places. And, and being in Texas for the last 10 years, I, I can tell you that, that inside the state, we think of Texas as like six or seven different states unto itself. You know, there's, there's, there's North Texas and Metroplex, and, and then you go several hours to the Northwest, and you're in the Panhandle, not North Texas anymore for some strange reason, you're in the Panhandle, and then there's West Texas and South Texas, and Houston's its own little thing, and you got East Texas, and people from East Texas talk like they're from East Texas, and then Austin's kind of in the middle, and we don't know what's going on with Austin. Austin's its own little thing under itself. Again, we understand that different places kind of have some sort of, you know, feel or definition in the zeitgeist, if you will. So I want to try and figure out what would people have originally thought about when they saw that place mentioned. A great example of exactly what I'm talking about is John chapter 1. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I want to know why that question is asked in that way. So again, ask the question, where? Where did this take place? Another question. At, oops, too far. Ask why. Why did this take place? Why did this take place? What caused this? What triggered this? What prompted this? What led to this? What precipitated this? Why did this event happen? What, what events led up to this? What, what caused this to happen? I want to know what led up to this. And then the last question is, where's the wrong buttons here? Ask wherefore. Ask wherefore. In other words, why did God in his infinite wisdom see fit to preserve this story for posterity? Why did God see fit to preserve this for posterity? The difference between why and wherefore, why is asking why did this originally happen? What caused this? What precipitated this? But then asking wherefore is asking why did God see fit to preserve this for people today? And the way that I look at it, every event in the life of ancient Israel had a why. Every event had a cause. But not every event in the life of ancient Israel had a wherefore because not every event was preserved for us to know about. So the things that were preserved for us to know about, I want to know what God is trying to communicate to us today. A great example of, of this, John, uh, at the end of his gospel, in chapter, at the end of chapter 20, I believe, he mentions that not everything happened in the life of Jesus was recorded for us to know about. But the things that were recorded were done so that you might believe. And so, again, with the rest of Scripture, the things that are recorded, I want to sort of figure out what exactly is God trying to communicate to us today. Number five, I want you to learn to read prayerfully. Learn to read prayerfully. And I especially think about James chapter 1 and verse 5 when it comes to this idea, where James says, if anyone lack wisdom, let him ask and the Lord will answer. I certainly believe that it's important that when we come to a part of the Bible that we don't really understand what's going on, I think it's appropriate to, to pause and, and pray and ask God to open up our mind and heart to the things that he's trying to reveal to us in his word. I really believe in the power of James 1 and, and verse 5. But there's something else I think about along these lines, and it's a practice that was first taught to me as praying the text back to God. Learn to pray the text back to God. And here's what we have in mind. Let's say you're going through your, your Bible study, and you come to a part of your study that mentions a particular sin. I think that it would be appropriate to pause and pray, Lord, I pray that this sin is not a part of my life. And if it is, I need your help in rooting it out by your love and power. If your part of the Bible study deals with some part of God's nature or character, 
it would be appropriate to pause and pray, Lord, thank you for being a God of mercy or love or compassion or holiness or, or righteousness or whatever the case may be. And the reason that I love this practice so much, learning to pray the text back to God, the reason that I love this so much is because it helps the Bible make its most difficult journey, and that is the journey from our head to our heart to our hands. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but the most difficult journey the Bible ever makes is the journey from our head to our heart to our hands. And learning to pray the text back to God helps with that endeavor. Learn to read prayerfully. Number six, and finally this morning, the Bible class hour will be yours. Number six, learn to read the Bible purposefully. Learn to read the Bible purposefully. And I initially think of this in terms of a, of a habit that really gets on my nerves. I always get a little, uh, little perturbed when people's idea of Bible study is letting the Bible randomly fall open to some random page and randomly swinging their finger down the page to some random verse. That must be the verse that God has to say to my life right now. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. You're just being lazy. And it drives me so bonkers. Chuck, I've given it a name. I now call that the fortune cookie hermeneutic. Because that's all you're doing. You're treating the Bible like a fortune cookie. Don't do that. Don't jump around in your Bible study from verse to verse or even chapter to chapter. Don't do that. Learn to study your way through whole books of the Bible at one time. And I don't mean that you have to start in Genesis and work your way all the way to the maps in canonical order. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm not talking about that. But learn to study your way through whole books of the Bible at one time. Don't jump around in your Bible study. Have a purpose. Have a plan. Have a system. Have a scheme. Have something that you're working out in your study that you're trying to make your way through the entire Bible. Learn to study your way through whole books of the Bible. Learn to repurposely. But the bigger point here is, I want you to always remember the purpose of Bible study. Always remember the purpose of Bible study. What exactly are we trying to accomplish when we study God's Word? And maybe put another way, why in our church culture do we place such a premium on Bible study and Bible reading and Bible class and Bible teaching? Is it because we're trying to prepare people for the big Bible bowl in the sky? Is that what we think we're trying to do? Well, of course not. And I want to direct your attention to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 17. In verse 16 is where he says, all scripture is inspired and profitable. But in verse 17 he says, the Bible was given to us, the Bible has been inspired, Bible study is important, so that, verse 17, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good and we're going to pick this idea up at the end of our first session this afternoon. But what we discover only in hindsight is that God uses a lifetime of Bible study to prepare us for the unknown future we all face. That in Bible study, God is preparing us for all of the horrible nightmares coming our way. God is using us, or using Bible study to equip us for every good work. Maybe it's the case that in your past, some of you, in your past, you once saw a trial or a challenge coming your way. And as you saw that trial kind of manifesting itself on the horizon, your initial reaction was that you panicked. You panicked. And you thought to yourself, this, this very well could be the end of me. This, this trial coming my way, this could cost me my life, my health. 
Uh, it could cost me my family, my job, my career, my, my marriage. You panicked when you saw the trial coming your way. But I also hope it's the fact for many of you that in your past, you've also at one point seen a trial or a challenge coming your way. And instead of panic, your reaction was one of kind of a, a mysterious calm or peace. And you remember thinking to yourself, I have no idea how I'm going to survive this challenge that's coming my way. But something tells me God's going to take care of me. I have no idea how. I have no idea whatsoever. But something tells me I'm, I'm going to be okay. Have any of you ever felt that way, thought that? Any of you ever thought that? Maybe you were kind of, after that, you were kind of a little weirded out by how calm you were in the face of that threat. Let me tell you something this morning. And I'll share more about my personal story this afternoon. But I have learned the hard way that first response is a response of fear. The second response is one of faith. And the only way we get to that second response is by investing ourselves in a lifetime of Bible study in order to be drawn closer to the heart of its author. And in that study, God prepares us for every good work. Learn to read the Bible purposefully. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and how it is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, I pray that you will stir us up to be better students of your word, to impress upon our heart the importance of studying the Bible well, of learning the rules, to, to learn how to rightly divide the sacred scriptures that can make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Father, we're thankful for your son and for his gospel. And Father, stir us up to be better teachers of your word, better communicators of your gospel, knowing that only eternity will be able to tell that we, the good we have done, for the glory of your great name. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for your time and attention.